I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson, and our guest today is Scott Gosnell, entrepreneur, scientist, writer, wizard, and the translator of the collected works of Giordano Bruno. Um, say hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. I've been following your work for a little while. It's been really exciting to see all of Bruno's stuff come out, and um, and you've been you've and you've been noticed by other people too. Like you were on uh, Rune Soup, you're on Gordon White's podcast, I think. Yes. Yep. And uh, and you even have a podcast of your own where you don't just interview weird occult people. You have like historians and scientists and thinkers of various sorts on, right? Like. Yeah, that was originally supposed to be the entrepreneur part of the uh, of, of the the bio there. Oh, but um, so you know, it was intended originally to be more people who were doing tech companies and that sort of thing. Actually, devolved or almost immediately devolved into uh, interesting people who I thought I would like to talk to. So, um, yeah. science fiction writers and uh, anthropologists and psychologists and you know, uh, Buddhist practitioners and just all kinds of different people. So, well, uh, I mean, that's cool. Have you, did you get any interesting entrepreneurs on like any interesting tech startups or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I've had a bunch of different people. Uh, I had, for example, the founder of Dagobah chocolate. Oh, they're from, I think they're from Southern Oregon, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, Frederick uh, Sch- Frederick Schiller. Yeah, and um, he's interesting also from the occult side in that he was inspired to or led to um, start the chocolate company or or get really into chocolate after he had a vision of the goddess of chocolate. There's a goddess of chocolate. There is apparently a goddess of the of the chocolate plant. Man, I feel like and, my entire life I've I've been uh, neglecting her. <laughs> Although I have certainly been eating a lot of chocolate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. There, you know, uh, it's the, the interesting thing about it is that although there are a lot of people who are into these, what would be considered occult things, it's, it's actually more common and more mundane than many people would think who are not, who, who do not look at the world that way. Yeah. I think you're, really right about that and it's something that i well i mean part of it is that like people who are into this sort of occult thing you got a choice you can either be honest and open about it in which case a a fairly large segment of the population is going to dismiss you as some sort of wacko or nut job um or you can hide it or you can move to a place like portland where you don't have to hide it and people will take you seriously because you're not as crazy as the next guy Right. But also the thing is that like another person I interviewed was Mitch Horowitz. And one of his big things is sort of experimental religion in the history of America. Yeah. Have you, have you read Occult America, his book? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very good. Yeah. But like the, you know, the Quakers and the Shakers and the Mormons and the spiritualists and the transcendentalists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people as who are as sort of scientifically, on the ball as uh, William James in the late 19th century, mm-hmm. you know, who is doing 
you know, serious psychological research was also very interested in what's called new thought or yeah. how ideas influence reality. Right, right. And right. um and that stuff is really fascinating to me. I love how I mean people don't really realize that that America has produced some very influential and major like religions and spiritual paths, you know, um uh Mormonism probably being the most public, but like spiritualism was really big. Uh, the New Thought Movement uh, is that a, I guess it's mostly American, um, but I mean it's uh, and then even like you get stuff like Rudolf Steiner coming over and making like Waldorf schools and and all of these like you know there's there's so much occult stuff embedded in American history that we we love to ignore. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is that um, it's possible to look at just like the the old saying that any sufficiently advanced science looks like magic mm -hmm. so you know so does any sufficiently advanced magic looks like psychology right yeah or it looks like science so if you're doing it in the right way and it's not just you know a, an interpretive dance you know or something like that then it becomes a way of looking at what the mind is doing in a kind of accurate way and isn't, you know, you, you, you have to anchor it in something real, but you know, if you do that, then you end up with something very powerful and very useful. Yeah. I think that there's a little bit of a danger there in getting, you know, uh, sometimes when, when conflating magic and science, I think there's a, there's a danger of getting a little bit too wrapped up in like the materialistic view of the world. And, um, you know, I, we're, I, I hope, well, hopefully we'll discuss a little bit about Culliano and his views of like how the Renaissance mind worked and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we, we're still kind of stuck in the aftermath of kind of a combination of like the Protestant Reformation and like, uh, you know, materialist heavy hitters like Descartes and Hobbes and the stuff that they tried to teach and how much we love them. Like we love Descartes. Descartes is everywhere in our society, even though, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't really think about it, but like, is there any uh, philosopher quoted more than he is? Like his, I think, therefore I am. You see it everywhere all the time. <laughs> That's true. Um, <coughs> but yeah, in, in these interviews that I've done, particularly with the anthropologists, there are like three basic principles. And one of them is, is that, you know, you can trust that people in the past were no more stupid than they are in the present. Mm -hmm. Or uh, as Lynn Kelly's uh, friend put it, she said, you know, all of those old folks were practical. They were very practical. Otherwise they would have died. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So a lot of these technologies, which they couch in terms of religion or of magic. So she was speaking in particular of the Aboriginal song lines mm -hmm. and how those are used as memory techniques uh, right. to help guide people across the Australian continent. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things is, is that, you know, people back then were not stupid. They just didn't have, you know, they didn't have iPhones. They just didn't have, you know, electric light. Well, so they, they have, had to be even more, paper, right? Like they had to, right. Right. Record. So they had to be more clever in a way than we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you if you screw up in modern society, right, there are ways to catch you. 
Right. If you screw up and you're out in the middle of the wilderness, right, and you eat the wrong plant or you get a little too close to the wrong snake, right, that's it for you. Yeah. So uh, that was rule number one. Uh, rule number two was you can generally trust people's observations, but not always their interpretations. Oh, that so, is a good rule to keep in mind. Yeah. So when people say, um, you know, St. Catherine or Hildegard von Bingen or someone is, ha is, is writing down their visions, mm -hmm. it's more likely that they actually had the vision but you don't necessarily have to trust what their interpretation of that vision is. Right. Right. You don't have to trust, you know, how they think that that vision got into their head or how they came to have that vision. Yeah. And that applies regardless of, you know, time period or anything else. And then the third rule was, was that, you know, people in the past uh, were just as fond of hoaxes and jokes and BS and will, you know, occasionally say things just for the fun of saying them, you know, or will write them in, you know, as, as an interpretation or as a fill-in for other material, which is actually real. I feel like that one should be on a t-shirt and we should make everybody wear it. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a Freemason. And one of the things that we have to deal with when looking at the history of Freemasonry is the huge uh, explosion of hoaxes during the 19th century. And um, and a lot of that stuff is still quoted by people who are like terrified of Masons today. Like a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff around Freemasonry comes out of stuff like the Taxil hoax and uh, and other stuff in the in the 19th century that it's it's just so tiring to see it. You know, like these people putting so much energy into something that was so definitely a hoax and so ridiculously hoaxy. Uh, yeah, and that I mean, but I mean, it, and that sort of thing must propagate through the centuries. I'm sure there are so many other places where we have to worry about that. Um, and then the second one, the the second point, r remind me of that one again. <laughs> I've had a uh, long morning. <laughs> so that you can generally trust the observation, but not always the interpretation. Right. The 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 visions, like uh, uh, that one's really interesting too. Uh, have you read? This book came out a while ago, and I don't think it ever made a big, very big splash. But uh, John Michael Greer wrote a book called The UFO Phenomena, where he looks at like UFOs and compares them to the concept of like spiritual visions. And he's like, we know these people are having visions, but the way that they interpret them is is based on the culture and the society that they're that they exist in, right? So they they're told that these are UFO visions, so they interpret them as UFO experiences, whereas you know, because it's not okay to have visions now. Like our our culture doesn't accept right. it. There's not a there's not a space for it. And right, and also you know that there are people who see strange lights in the sky, mm -hmm. and they say, "Oh, that's a UFO." And and literally, it is. You know, as William Gibson said, you know, I believe that there are objects that sometimes fly, and sometimes they are unidentified. But we don't <laughs> know. Like that doesn't necessarily mean like. That those are, uh, you know, little green men in a tin can that came over from Mars, right? Or or whatever it is that that people are thinking that week, or you know, it's not necessarily that there are greys. It's not necessarily right, but they are experiencing these things, and they are sincere in having experienced them, but the interpretation that they or that you have about that experience may or may not be 
you know, useful or may not be the only way that you can look at that experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I think, yeah, that's, I think that's right on the nose. All right. Let, I want to talk a little bit about Bruno because, uh, I, uh, I want to hear like, how did you find out about Giordano Bruno? What, what was your introdu- introduction to him? So originally I found him through a series of books by John Crowley, mm-hmm. no relation to Alistair. Right, the Egypt um, series, right? The Egypt series. And so uh, one part of the, the series takes place in kind of 60s, 70s, 80s America. Uh, one part of it is with uh, a whole cast of characters in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Um, including Giordano Bruno and William Shakespeare and John Dee and several other people. Um, And so in there, several characters use the art of memory, which is the the technique of the memory palace, uh, to do various things, some of which are memorizing things and some of which are, you know, manipulating reality in various ways. Mm -hmm. And so I read that and you know, he sort of helpfully puts at the back little references. So, you know, that led myself and a lot of other people to Francis Yates' Art of Memory and Giordano Bruno and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment and uh, all of the other uh, Yates books. Uh-huh. And you've read all of those and you sort of say, wow, these are really cool. This is really a neat system. You know, I'd like to read uh, this, the book, uh, shadow on the shadows of ideas, um, which is Bruno's first memory book, which she Yates mentioned several times within the course of her book. And you go and you look for it and you find out that it hasn't been translated in 400 years. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm fairly stubborn, um, so, you know, I spent five years working toward a PhD before I finally got out. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I started looking for someone to translate this thing and, and you know, called up or emailed uh, a bunch of grad students and classics professors and others who I thought might have an interest in doing it. And nobody, you know, they all said, oh, I don't really have time. I'm working on this other project. This is not my area of interest. You know, I don't really know Latin, you know, whatever it may be. But you're a Latin teacher. And I'm like, well, I'm not a professional translator. And uh, I said, okay, fine. And, you know, one of the rules is, uh, in another area of my life, is, you know, if you ask enough people to volunteer and uh, they don't, then, you know, sooner or later you ask for a volunteer and you have to be the volunteer. Yeah. You have to do the thing that needs doing because, you know, someone needs to do it and you are someone. So you have to do it. (laughs) Uh, And you, so you you broke up a little bit when you're talking about the Latin stuff. Had you had any Latin experience before? I had had uh, scientific Latin and a little bit of legal Latin and, you know, a little church choir Latin Uh in a a Protestant church. But, you know, still uh, you get a good good bit of it in that. And um, but that was about it. And so I had to kind of teach myself on the fly how to uh, how to learn Latin. 
And uh, I've heard that Bruno's Latin is kind of chunky and obtuse. Is it? Did you find it to be that way? Like, how was the? I mean, I I don't know that. Have you looked at other Latin since then? So, do you have like a sense of of Bruno's style? Like, can you compare it to anything else? Yeah. So he basically had three. Oh. One of them is, uh, just it, it's very flowery. It's it's usually he does this in the introduction where he's trying to butter someone up. Uh huh. So he will, you know, he'll say, you know, this is this is. Uh, you're the most glorious king in the world, or you, you know, you've been such a uh, helped me ambassador, Mauvissier, whoever it was, who was his patron at the time. And, you know, how wonderful to see all of you. And he'll go on for a page, you know, on a single sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, or he will uh, go on at length and say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, but of a new philosophy, a, a scholar, but of, you know, strange things and, you know, he'll, he'll go on about himself for a long way. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of mode one. And it's a bit difficult to directly uh, transfer that into English. He also at times will just sort of say, you know, he'll, he'll have very terse sentences at the end of sections where he just says, Oh, go look this up or, you know, think about it. Right. And it's, you know, and again, you kind of have to, it takes a while to get comfortable enough to like unpack his language without doing damage to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully I'm getting better at that as I go, you know, I'm on book five now and I'm finally starting to get comfortable and say, okay, I can comfortably make these changes to what he's saying without messing with the actual meaning or without messing with his diction or something else. Um, but for the rest of it, he's very clear, uh-huh. you know, um, and because it's Renaissance Latin, it's, it tends to be a lot closer to Italian, right? He's, he's, you know, mentally translating it out of his native language of Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has an Italianate flavor. Uh, other, other material from that age is also fairly good, especially if it's been, um, you know, if you get if you get into the medieval stuff, you'll have a lot more of these little contractions and and um, you know um, idiosyncrasies, basically orthographical idiosyncrasies uh-huh. that are sometimes hard to unpack. Right. But for scientific Latin, or the or rather the Latin of natural philosophy, which was going on at the time, it's fairly clear. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I, I mean. Uh, like D'Ambrosio Idearum is such a, like, it's such a beautiful piece of philosophy. Like he, he sort of walks you through all these steps and he explains like his concept of images and like, what is an image and how, how does it, uh, tie into, you know, his, his vision of like how the world works. Um, and it's one of the things that's really fat that, that I find super curious about Bruno and that I'm always looking for clues on is like, um, Yeats was really hooked on Bruno's concept of love, uh, which I think carried over into John Crowley's Crowley's uh, books. But so so Bruno had this concept of love being like a universal glue or a force that sort of tied everything together. Like he probably would have named gravity love if he had been the one who 
discovered it and worked up the math for it. You know, if he had taken Newton's spot, um, and you get a little bit of it in in Deimbrus Idearum, where he talks about how like just looking at something isn't a true understanding. Like you don't have a true understanding of a thing until the image is so deep in your soul or so deep in your understanding that you are basically in love with it. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of, so I, and I think even in on the infinite, like I, I confess to you before we started recording that I haven't finished reading all the, all of on the infinite, but I, I get the impression that there's almost this thing in on the infinite where he's like, yeah, the, the planets are, circling the sun the sun is at the center of everything and the reason that they stick around is that the planets are in love with the sun and that they're not leaving yes so yeah he 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 definitely says that everything reduces to love so Mm -hmm. for example in in one sense so there's the there's one of his later works is on binding in general Mm -hmm. which you know we can talk about later but essentially he posits these things called bonds uh-huh. or uh, which are connected to the idea of rays or other things that were going on in the sort of neoplatonic and later uh, systems. So everything is connected by bonds mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, and he's like, all of these bonds, no matter what they are reduced to bonds of love. Right. So literally as though, you feel tied to this person or connected to this person because you're in love with them. But if you hate someone, that's actually the same thing as love. Mm -hmm. So it has that same intensity and really you are in love with the person, but at the same time, that bond is repulsive. (laughs) And, you know, and then, so he's like, okay, so that's true. If all the affections, Mm -hmm. you know, all the emotions, um, but then it's also true for larger things such as planets. And this is why everything uh, sticks together. And he says, so, you know, one of the issues is that he says, everything has a soul in it, mm-hmm. right? And you have soul from pebbles to planets. So, and so right. And he says, so the weird thing is, is that you have a, a soul for the whole thing uh-huh. and you have a soul for each part of the thing. So, like a human could have a soul for their big toe. So, that's interesting. Uh, just this morning, I was reading something that uh, Aaron Aaron Leach had written that was sort of talking about that same concept of uh, souls being constituent. But I mean, that ties into sort of a, a unary uh, or a monist view of of creation as well, like. Uh, our souls aren't necessarily separate from the universal soul or from the, the the one soul. We're just individual expressions or even like hallucinations of separation from it. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think he might've been onto something. I don't know. I, I really, I'm impressed by Bruno's mind. Like he is a fascinating thinker. Um, and I'm also like, so I, I, I just read the 30 seals and the seal of seals and mm-hmm. one of the things about that, like, first of all, it it seems almost uh, like useless or, or I don't useless isn't the right word, but it seems ridiculous that he went through and like cataloged all of these different types of spaces. Like, oh, this is how you can remember a list of things. Oh, this is how you can remember 
lists of lists of things. And, you, you know, your insight that they look like uh, data structures in a computer was, was really interesting. But at the same time, I'm reading it and I'm like, this is, is, are you just writing this to sell a book, Bruno? I mean, did this really need to be written down? This is, this is so, uh, this, a lot of this seems like really obvious stuff. Or like, for instance, the, the field, like, like his first, his first seal, which is just a three-dimensional grid. And you're reading it and you're like, okay, so you keep things in a three-dimensional grid, but there's no there's no structure that's usually associated with the art of memory to help you remember where all of this stuff goes now. Um, I lost my train of thought there, but uh, I guess I was just trying to say that after reading The 30 Seals and then going and reading uh, Lynn Kelly's book on, um, on like non-literate memory spaces... Uh, mm-hmm. And realizing that um, that they that there that there's a, a much more organic way to use the art of memory, which I'm sure Bruno realized that it doesn't need to be like so structured and cataloged and broken down into like the the nuts and bolts as much as stuff in the real world or the material world seems to need. Um, did you get any? Th- thought about that when you were reading about like his or when you were translating his concepts of ideas like how how strict do you think he was in terms of of the the idea of the seals and keeping things in such rigid structures in his mind i don't think he was particularly structured what he really liked was exuberance and variety uh-huh so think about the field mm-hmm. right so the first of the 30 seals is called the field um it's essentially an empty space or basic space in which you can put anything else so you you go out and there's an there's a total green field there right nothing is there mm-hmm. and you just plonk your buildings or whatever else down in that field. So it's a place for you to construct smaller level uh, places or lower level places. Okay. Right. And it's just a general organization thing. Same thing with the second one, which is the sky or the heavens mm-hmm. where he's like, okay, so you look, essentially you're looking up at the sky and instead of seeing constellations there or on top of the constellations that you see there, you can put additional visual images mm-hmm. right so instead of orion you put you know madonna mm-hmm. right in that location and that's your first image and you right you go through the whole sequence of everything mm-hmm. and build up this entire visual field at the top level where you can put the rest of the stuff and some of those other okay. right some of those other seals are meant to be little second or third tier memory palaces so uh you know like he has one that's like the physician's chambers and gardens uh-huh. and so you can actually imagine that like attached to this castle that you have or in a particular location in the castle you come upon this little you know uh physician's hut with the little herb garden out around it right and then you you walk through that one mm-hmm. right or you you find the one that fits what you need right 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 so when when we think of this from like a neurological or psychological perspective, right? You want to have memory palaces where the structure corresponds in some way to the information 
that you are trying to memorize. Okay, that makes sense. I uh, I feel like I've, in, I've encountered that in my own use of memory palaces. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, so. One of the one of the things that that what do we call people who do memory stuff? Nemo technicians. <laughs> uh but one of the things that you you get like arguments about this where uh where in like ad herenium it it argues like you have to use a real building and then like in lynn kelly's stuff it's a physical space that memory is being used with right like she talks about how her her memory space like she literally walks her dog and her memory space is her neighborhood and the houses and and trees and and natural formations around it and she talks about uh like the memory spaces of um of like uh neolithic structures which you know she's like and of course all of the rocks were different because you needed them to be different in order for them to be memory spaces you know they couldn't all be the same um but then bruno is encouraging the use of like an entire imaginary world like his mind is populated with with things that might be entirely fantastical, like buildings that may have never possibly existed in, in reality. And yet to him, he has created them with in his mind with such, um, you know, fervor, or I guess love, you know, that, that they, that they're just as effective as real spaces that have been memorized. Right. So you have like, I've done both, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're writing, uh, if you're uh, writing fiction, mm-hmm. right, you are literally building that imaginal world, mm-hmm. right, that you wander around in. So if you are J.R.R. Tolkien, right, every part of Middle Earth is alive for you and has all of these bits to it. Like, you know, there is a place in your head that is Gondor. Yeah. There is a place, right, there's a place that is Mordor, and you can go there and you can look at it. And sometimes, you find things that you did not expect to find there. Right. If you're, you're right. If you're a writer. So that, you know, that's one extreme on the other extreme. Uh, I have used memory palaces for final exams before where I would literally go the day before to an exam room and I would place information that I needed to know in the various corners of the room and mm-hmm. on the clock and on the chalkboard and the desks and whatever I needed mm-hmm. so that it was right there and the entire room becomes a prop that helps you to remember it. Just like, you know, if you're writing down uh, numbers for long division, right? It's easier to do that than to hold it all in your head if you've got two six-digit numbers. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's easier just to take a pencil and paper and write it down. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, it's easier for you. It takes some of the cognitive load if you've got the prop right there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, right. right. That's that right. totally makes sense. Um, yeah, and but it's less portable. So uh-huh. if you are going to be a traveling uh, uh, mnemonicist or memory artist or, or whatever, uh-huh. right, or if you are an academic in the 16th century who keeps getting excommunicated and thrown out of places <laughs> and is chased by the inquisition, right? Then having a fully portable set of memory palaces makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't lose them. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the scene in, in, uh, in the Egypt series where Bruno is in danger of getting kicked out of the Dominican monastery. And he's talking to his teacher. He's like, well, I ran out of memory palace space. Can I just create a uh, 
an imaginary tower. And his teacher's like, no, 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 no. That's that's a sin. Uh, but like, you know, he, even in there, he's like, but I can just create like as many towers as I need. I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to tell anybody. Um, but except for the there's I, I don't know. Would you call it magical realism? I don't know enough about literary criticism to say that. But there's a sense that Bruno's memory or the way Bruno uses his memory in that in that uh, book is affecting the world around him or is like noticeable by the people around him. So he still gets kicked out. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So they, they figure out that he's up to stuff that is not within the bounds of what they want him to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual reason that he got kicked out was that he got caught with a bunch of forbidden books and he was yeah. going to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. And also, he, I think he just got sick of being stuck in a, in a monastery. Oh, yeah. You know, even though it was like, you know, it was one of the sort of advanced academic institutions of the day he wanted to get out and see some stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and the third thing is, is that he was an extremely contentious person. Like he was not easy to get along with Mm -hmm. at any point in his life. And so somebody was going to denounce him sooner or later for something. Oh yeah. Right. And he'd already been disciplined because one of the first things he did uh, once he started doing the art of memory was he cleared out all of the religious images from his uh, his his cell or his bedroom, mm-hmm. right? Which, if you do memory arts, you know, is so that he can put memory images up yeah. around his bed, right? But if you're, you know, a Catholic uh, monk in the 16th century, you know, this looks like Protestantism to you, right? Which right, you, which, and you're like, oh my gosh, we're going to have another Martin Luther here in the in the convent. Uh, what you know? What are we going to do about this? Mm-hmm. And right, and you say, you know, Brother Giordano, uh, or Brother Filippo, or whatever. You say maybe you should, you know, put the Virgin Mary back up. And he says, you know, in no uncertain terms, screw you. I'll do what I want. <laughs> right. And so, right, and like that has one outcome. Mm-hmm. If you're in a small community where people are, you know, where they want telling you. each other. Right, there's nothing to do but gossip and and read and teach and do that kind of stuff. So it's like any hothouse academic situation, and he was going to get busted sooner or later. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. I mean, even even the end of his life, you he seemed like a very uncompromising fellow who who was very certain of his convictions and really knew what he wanted to do, <laughs> or really knew what he wanted to think. He didn't want anybody telling him what to do. Right. Now, yeah, it, it was very serious, though, because he argued himself out of being pardoned. Or, yeah. well, essentially, they, they were trying to work a deal at, at a certain point, from what we can tell, that he would be confined back to that old convent or monastery in Naples mm-hmm. and, you know, would would be closely watched. But other than that, you know, they just wanted to make sure he wasn't out there rabble rousing and causing trouble and doing all this stuff. And he kept arguing with them. Right? And he's like, well, I'll apologize for all the religious stuff, but the philosophical stuff, I don't, you know, that's my own conscience and I can't do it. Right. And, you know, and finally, after eight years of, of a trial and bickering with him over this stuff, they're like, all right, fine. Like, 
kill him off and uh, you know stuck him on a fire so what is the fifth book that you're going to that you're working on that you're translating so the fifth book is going to have the essays on magic mm-hmm. and also potentially the 30 statues which is another one of his memory works that's a big one isn't it it is a big one so i don't know i may have to break that off into its own own book and how did you how are you finding the the latin manuscripts for this or the latin versions of this they're fine it's it's gotten a lot easier over the years uh-huh. um you know like i said i'm a self-taught amateur but eventually like things start to make sense and um i feel like at the minute you actually publish a book you turn into a professional you could be a self-taught professional now that's right. I'm a self-taught professional, You're, an autodidact. Yes. Right? <laughs> I'm going to add that to your list of titles. Wizard, okay. comma, autodidact. Right there. It's written down on the back of my piece of paper here. <laughs> Very good. So now it's official. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should add it, oh, to, your, okay. add it to your Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> um so all right so it's a very it's yeah it's a very interesting uh section of his work mm-hmm. because it was only published posthumously oh really um yeah what year did they finally uh, get around to no... uh i don't know um i would have to look it up mm-hmm. but essentially he had a lot of his books started out as lecture notes Mm-hmm. Uh, taken down by one or another of his students or that he had taken down himself and then transformed into a work. Mm-hmm. And so this set of manuscripts, which were late writing, um, were written down by uh, a guy named Hieronymus Bessler. Uh-huh. And he and his brother were, uh, you know, natural philosophers uh, in Germany, they went on. One brother wrote a very famous book about uh, horticulture and flowers and botany. Um, you know, and they were they were quite brilliant. But uh, in his younger days, the one brother was a student of Bruno's. Uh, before Bruno got into a fight with the local uh, Lutheran pastor and got kicked out of town. <laughs> So, you know, and that's right before he goes off to Venice to, uh, you know, to teach uh, this Venetian nobleman the arts of magic or, you know, scare quotes around magic. Um, but that was a trap. Which might wasn't include it? the art of memory. It turns out it was a trap. Yeah. And so that was the end. Well, I mean, he still had years li- yeah, living, they, living they, in a lovely they, hole, but. They caught him and and put him through various trials and things. Yeah. But um, yeah. So anyway, so these works are interesting because uh, a lot of what he calls magic is really again natural philosophy, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is you can kind of see him both in in the magical essays and also in the memory works. He's reaching toward something that would later be called psychology. Yeah. So obviously, memory in general is is like a psychological topic now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in Thirty Seals, there's that the the back section where he's talking about the seal of seals, mm-hmm. where he talks about some process called contraction, right? Which is where your soul makes some sort of movement, and you get 
a very weird result that is not explainable in normal terms. So he mentions cases of what we would call psychosocial blindness, mm -hmm. where you know some some guy curses his son and the son goes blind and recovers his sight years later, uh -huh. right? Or you know, or where Bruno's a little kid and he gets frightened by a snake and like starts swearing at it for like an hour and the you know the uh, servants come running and you know he's scared the servants and he's talking to the snake and he's you know there's a whole whole thing here mm -hmm. but like you know people who had people who had supposedly learned languages that they had no way to know mm -hmm. right they were speaking in in tongues or something and he's like all of this all of these are examples of the contraction of the soul which means something like withdrawal but also could mean something like going from general to specific mm -hmm. there are a lot of meanings to to that he puts on contraction and there are a number of other renaissance philosophers who had a lot else to say about this uh how much access did bruno have to um uh, like Kabbalistic texts, uh, like in the 16th century, there would have been, there would have been some stuff out there. Uh, but there's this concept that I guess like Isaac Luria talks about called Simtsum, which means contraction right. has to do with like an element of creation where God withdraws and contracts portions of himself to create as part of, you know, the, the, Kabbalistic creation story. I'm wondering if yes, that's so, a concept that Bruno might have had access to. He definitely had access to some Kabbalistic uh, knowledge, but it looks as though it was a little bit secondhand. Mm -hmm. So he he certainly knows about the Sephirot mm -hmm. um, because he mentions that uh, uh, the Kabbalists have you know, 10 dignities of God or 10 attributes of God. Right. Uh, right. And he compares those to Ramon Lull's uh, attributes of God. And then he says, you know, I have 30 <laughs> because for him, uh, I, I don't know exactly why he picked 30 or why 30 was, was the number that he was really entranced with, but wherever he's going for, like, here are a whole bunch of things. And this is kind of a complete unity uh, or you know, like a complete universe of itself, he always does thirty of them. So in uh, in on the shadows of ideas, there are thirty intentions and thirty um, conjectures or, or or other things. The wheels have thirty letters in them, so that you can get in both the Roman alphabet and the Greek alphabet and the Hebrew alphabet. Well, my impression of that, but I don't know how much he had. I don't know how much. Uh, Kabbalistic literature he had read, uh -huh. or if he had just talked to people. I mean, I'm not sure how much thought he put into it, but my impression of the 30-letter alphabet he has is that he wanted to cover um, every like phoneme, every sound you could make with one symbol, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at right. the end, he's got phi, omega, theta, ayin, uh, sheen, and Zadi, uh, not in that particular order, but like he basically, oh, and he has a uh, psi. So he's basically got like every sound that he's going to need to make in the language that he's memorizing. I was just figured that it was done that way 
I mean, maybe it's just coincidence. I, I guess I don't know why 30, but yeah, he talks, he loves the number 30. Right. And so, right. And again, 30 seals, 30 statues, mm-hmm. 30 of this, 30 of that. And it's always like in the magical essays, he says, you know, here are 30 things that you can use to bind with, mm-hmm. you know, and some of them are like eyes or a ring mm-hmm. or right. And so he goes on through these things and some of them are like, you know, the abstraction of love. <laughs> right. And it's like, they're not, it's not organized. Like, in modern days, we would be organizing things in what the the McKinsey consulting guys call MISI or you know mutually exclusive and comprehensively exhaustive, right? <laughs> categories of things. So uh-huh. you want to get like all the categories you can, but they should all be separate, mm-hmm. right? He sort of does more of a jumble sale approach, and right, and so he builds up these these long lists of things, but they're not like. You know, this thing is over here and that thing is over there. Mm-hmm. There's like overlap. There are gaps. There are, you know, there's redundancy. There's all kinds of stuff. If you could, uh, if you go, if you could go back in time, would you have a lunch with Giordano Bruno? Would you have a conversation with him? Sure. Do you think it'd be, do you think you would come away pissed off? <laughs> yes, he almost certainly would. Yeah. You know. Or no, you, do you think you'd get pissed off? Uh, I'm fairly level headed, so yeah. probably not. I don't know. Bruno seemed to like it. Seemed like his superpower was getting people pissed off. And, and yeah, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, as I said in the, I think in the the intro to the first book, like he's the only person I've ever heard of who got excommunicated from three different Christian sects. Yeah. <laughs> so some of which I didn't even know excommunicated people. They probably might have like invented excommunication just for Bruno. They're like, you know, we're going to need this probably again in the future. That's right. (laughs) My Alchemical Bromance is sponsored by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books is an online bookstore that focuses on rare, limited edition, and custom-made books of the highest quality. They specialize in books on the occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, and other topics of interest to you, our listeners. Check them out on the web at miskatonicbooks.com. Uh, all right, so uh, you you get interviewed about Bruno a ton. Like, every time I've... You, you, people are really curious about all the Bruno stuff, and you're probably one of the only people really spending a lot of time uh, with him, at least outside of academic circles, like in the realm that us... Uh, ordinary mortals get to access. Um, Although I will tell you, I, I just heard that John Michael Greer is doing uh, a translation of Diambris. I heard that too, uh, primarily because he's doing it through Azoth Press and Larry Roberts, the owner of Azoth Press, is a buddy of mine and he had told me about it. Uh, and John Michael Greer actually is the person who introduced me to Bruno. Oh. Sort of, kind of in a roundabout way. Many, many, many years ago, he got me to read um, Francis Yates' book, and then he gave me a copy of his... Uh, he's He's got a really old uh, article that I... In some defunct occult magazine that's about like introducing yourself to the art of memory and how to build a memory garden and all this stuff. So he kind of got me started with all this. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. It's It should be pretty interesting. Um, 
it'll be interesting to see the commonalities and differences between your uh, translations for sure. That'll be, that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. That will be good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that'll be cool. It's, I mean, I'd love to get more people paying attention to Bruno and more people like seeing what he was capable of. Um, it saddens me how, how horribly most people try to memorize things like this whole rote memorization stuff and, you know, that, that nobody, no, nobody seems to have any concept of how much they're actually capable of holding in their head. Uh, it makes me sad because when you start using it and you start using it for complicated stuff, you realize that there's no way to to really successfully like conceptualize things until you hold it in your head and can like play with it and move it around and try to connect it with other ideas and other stuff. So... So hopefully we get more like now we've got memory competitions where people do art of memory stuff competitively. And uh, I've been trying to get more Freemasons to use art of memory to memorize stuff. And I don't know how much that's working, but. Yeah, I hear that there are some memory techniques that a number of Masons use to memorize things using linked images or using Mm -hmm. linked concepts. Um, Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, well, so we have a little... Which, of course, you can't talk about because of the secret oaths. I could talk about the concepts and some of the ideas, and, and I can talk about like some of the history of it. Like We know that uh, really early on, some of our earliest documents, you know, stuff that was actually written down about Freemasonry, uh, included references to the art of memory. And in fact, um, there used to be sort of like officials who would go around and test Masons on the art of memory, and if they couldn't do it, they would get fined. So it was a it was a core concept. Um, and then uh, in a lot of jurisdictions and a lot of Grand Lodges, as you move through the degrees and move towards being a Master Mason, you have to memorize these. Uh, uh, sometimes we refer to them as catechisms, but they're like these question and answer things that that I didn't realize were set up as sort of linked images, but they're absolutely the same. Mem- they're, they're the memory space that Giordano Bruno talks about in the 30 seals, it's the chain. Like it's a, it's a, it's a linked list in your brain. I didn't even notice it before, but then I'm like, Oh, look at that. Uh, Yeah. So it was, it was funny seeing some of those seals where I was like, Oh, I've already learned this. I know this, this one. (laughs) Um, That's right. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, that also is a, another tantalizing clue because there's a sort of hypothesis that, uh, Bruno is connected to the Masons by way of, so he had, yeah. Bruno had a bunch of students who were called, called the Jordanisti, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and one of the Jordanos guys. Yeah. And one and of then, them uh, was hanging out with, uh, some people in the, in the Royal court in Scotland. Right. And knew the Shah, whatever Shah's name was, the, the master of the works, basically the guy who ran the, the, the original, proto-masonic grand lodge in scotland right yeah and then there's another branch that went through the rosicrucians oh right yeah so some of his student students would have been about the right age Mm -hmm. to have been involved in that first set of rosicrucian things again if you look at the rosicrucian manifestos and and writings Mm -hmm. there is a lot of image work there is being done right and also, so if you go through the, the Masonic system, right, 
if the art of memory goes all the way back mm -hmm. to the Scottish Rite lodges, right, then you have something where you're like, well, who told them how to do that? Well, I think we know right? for sure that the art of memory goes back to, um, to you know, semi-literate Europe, where right. Well, we know that it's all that it goes back there, but also like it would be very interesting if that was a connection, mm -hmm. right? We know that these people were were roaming around and were they think doing some kind of political activity mm -hmm. to reform or overthrow some of the rulers in Europe mm -hmm. and were right. They were certainly very politically active underground and we don't quite know what they were trying to do. Right. Right. But then, you know, you, you start to say, okay, this guy is connected to that guy and he passed on not only the political activism and the you know secret society aspects of it, but also the art of memory. Mm -hmm. And you start to go, wow, like you know, these guys were really into that. Yeah, in I, a way that was highly specific. And as you say, if who who knows how the seal got in there, whether someone read his books later or whether it was someone very early on who said, oh wow, like this is how you do it. And I think sometimes it might have just been. Uh just an obvious way to to put something together you know i mean it might just be coincidence mm -hmm. sometimes too like there's no actual evidence. there are no coincidences <laughs> no coincidences at all <laughs> it, they were all in it together <laughs> and 9-11 was an inside job but you're not a conspiracy site as well uh once you are well i mean I, I guess I would say that sometimes I listen to conspiracy theories, but I'm mostly a conspiracy skeptic. I have seen so much and, and I and I and, you know, primarily through like my study of like the uh, Freemasonry and the Illuminati and the sort of stuff connected to it and the amount of just like pure uneducated idiocy that goes into a lot of the conspiracy theories, uh, re you know, revolving around the Illuminati and such. It's it's so hard to. It's so hard to take seriously sometimes. So I, I'll i listen, but man, I'm going to really be skeptical. I probably won't argue about it, though, because, again, a lot of conspiracy theory people are not really open to having their minds changed. They've they've changed their mind once, and that's where it's going to stay. That's enough? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a big proponent of the anti-conspiracy theory, uh, theory of history, which is that, you know, there are more theories about conspiracy theories that cause people to act in a way than that there are actually conspiracies. Mm -hmm. I like right? uh, because it's a more comforting, comforting belief mm -hmm. to think that there is someone in the back room somewhere who is in control of things. Oh yeah, <laughs> th than it is to like realize, you know, most of these people, however powerful they are, you know, up to leaders of countries, are basically you know, desperately trying to throw levers, uh, throw throw levers and to find something that they can actually make happen. Yeah. Yeah. And they are frustratingly unable to get much done at all. That's certainly right? what it seems like most of the time. Uh, I assume you've read uh, the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. And I, yeah. I love his, his uh, idea about conspiracy theories in there, which is that, um, 
no, everybody is equally idiotic and equally unable to get along, and every conspiracy is accidental and full of bumbling fools. <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, that's, you know, I, I could I could see that. Seems like that when you when you really pay attention to, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. So I I'm not a super big conspiracy theory. They're they're great entertainment. Let's put it that way. That's right. Yeah, you, but you got to go back to those anthropological principles we were talking about earlier. Uh -huh. So, like most things are not the result of a conspiracy, but also, you know, people do talk to each other. Yeah. Like I don't I don't believe that there's like a big elaborate thing. But like, uh, you know, as they said, when, you know, when uh, Mike Pence appeared at a football game in Indiana for five minutes so that he could be offended, right? <laughs> you can assume that he and Donald Trump talked about it beforehand, right? That's right. not a very, it's like, they're, they're small conspiracies in the sense that somebody got on a private phone call, but uh -huh. they're not like conspiracies that last for 50 years to cover up the fact that aspirin is causing birth defects. Yeah, totally. Right, or whatever so, it may be. So small conspiracies. Right? I mean, Which it is yeah, not. yeah. I mean, like you're, t yeah. The the that absolutely. And they're really sense. boring. Yeah, the they're not part. very exciting. Most of the time, conspiracies are not very exciting, and and I would say that anytime yeah. they grow too big, they probably fail. Yeah. Or everybody agrees. You know, uh, uh, Freemasons like to tell, uh, t like to joke about the New World Order. Like, you know, you guys are all scared that we are trying to bring in the New World Order, but you all already agreed to it during the American Revolution. Like, that was it. We got democracy. <laughs> <laughs> that was our big conspiracy. That it really was the big conspiracy. You know, we succeeded in some places and failed in some places. And it wasn't just Masons doing it. It was a lot of people who were kind of like is the divine right of kings real or did somebody make that up at some point <laughs> uh yeah so but let's talk about some of your other stuff like let's talk about okay i i have a question i th and this is something that has really been bugging me uh when you were talking to gordon white he asked you about uh bruno and neoplatonism and you kind of like just outright was like no bruno wasn't a neoplatonist and I was like, but, but, but what about like Deumbris Idiarum is all of, you know, he, he goes on and on about Plotinus and he has these like, like Neoplatonic visions of how images descend from the divine and like all of this stuff. Like what, what is it that makes you discount Bruno's Neoplatonic things? Or did I misunderstand you or, or what's, can you explain I, a little bit? I didn't think. I, I didn't think that I said he wasn't a Neoplatonist. Oh. I think Gordon might have said that. Oh, well, then can... I, I'm so, super cool with Gordon Okay, being wrong. so the... Yeah, so... It, and if I did, then I, I apologize because he was very clearly a Neoplatonist. Okay, yeah, and I right? think... And, um, and he traces his Neoplatonism, you know, his biggest influences are Ficino on the one hand mm -hmm. and... um. Nicholas de Cusa uh -huh. on the other. And so Nicholas de Cusa is a natural philosopher, churchman, Neoplatonist. If you look through the, um, the dialogues, the, um, on the infinite there, uh -huh. right. And you look at everybody who I have got a little tiny bio for, 
one of the words in almost every single bio in that is, you know, Neoplatonist. So they were right. you know, Bishop of so-and-so Neoplatonist, right? Because that was the game in town, mm-hmm. right? That was it. So it was both hermetic, which I think Gordon felt that he was a hermetic person, but not Neoplatonist. Yeah. Um, but he is in fact both. Yeah. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that it's nearly impossible to be a hermetic person and not a Neoplatonist. I mean, there was so much uh, like cross influence in, in that part of the world there that like Neoplatonism and hermeticism are, are pretty closely intertwined. Like there's a lot of mixing. They were all, they were all reading that basically what was going on was that both hermeticism and Neoplatonism were kind of the new learning of the day. Mm -hmm. So it was after years and years of kind of logic and Aristotle and right. The sort of classical Mm -hmm. um, medieval curriculum, right. These come over into Latin and then into the vernacular, uh, right. Ficino does the translating, Mm -hmm. right. These things come online. Uh, He does them originally for uh, Cosmo de' Medici Mm -hmm. And then they become common currency and everybody's reading them. Right. Right. So like the, a lot of these things, which the magical people or the magically operant people of the Renaissance were interested in that are not really magic Mm -hmm. are things like uh, cryptography. Right. Are things like, right. So all of these things are really new knowledge that is somehow useful or powerful or just a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so Neoplatonism was one of those, one of the pieces of the new technology of the day. Mm-hmm. So just like today, you know, people will go on at length and, and read all sorts of books about string theory or quantum mechanics or neuroscience, right? This was the string theory, quantum mechanics, neuroscience, right? Consciousness studies of the day, right? Like, Everybody was into it, right? Everybody was looking at it, and they were all trying to figure out how to apply it to the world around them. Um, yeah. What Bruno, like, like the one thing in which Bruno differs from previous Neoplatonists is that, you know, he's always about kind of breaking up the hierarchy and replacing it with a network. So if you think about the cosmological works, Right. He says, okay, so the earth is not the center of the universe anymore. Right. It revolves around the sun. The other planets revolve around the sun. Okay, great. But then he says, but all of those stars that you see up there that aren't moving, those are other suns. Right. Right. He says, and if you were there, you would think, if you were on a planet revolving around one of them, you would think that that planet was the center of the universe. And you would be looking up at us and going, oh, what's that little star up there? Yeah. So, so he really right. So you took decenter to the level, entire yeah. universe, right? And you take the Nicholas de Cusa thing, which is the uh, you know God is a circle of infinite circumference whose center is everywhere mm-hmm. and whose periphery is nowhere. Have you ever read uh, Ben Franklin's Articles of Belief? Yes. Uh, where he has a long time. Ago. Uh, I mean, he wrote it when he was super young. Um, yeah. And I don't think he. Yeah, I read it when it first came out because I'm I'm real old. So. Yeah, you're, you're like the same age I am. <laughs> uh, well, I look good for my age. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I've got a I've got a gray beard, so. <laughs> um, but his uh, 
his article, I, 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 I love his articles of faith because he sort of talks about the same thing. He's like, he talks about the sun as being your local most deity. And that's the one that you should be worshiping. But then he also talks about like sort of an infinite universe populated by stars and planets and all this sort of stuff. And I'm certain that, that Benjamin Franklin at that young age never had access to uh, Nicholas de Cusa or Bruno. So I have no idea. Did he just think that up on his own? I don't know. He's a enigmatic figure for sure too. I mean, he's not that enigmatic. We have tons of stuff about him. We just, don't know where his ideas came from all the time um all right cool i'm really glad that we cleared that up because i was uh i was super baffled during the interview i was like wait a minute bruno's not a neoplatonist that that doesn't make any sense but um but now now it does make sense (laughs) yeah so he just he he isn't as big on the emanationist model Mm -hmm. so where you've got you know the one up up top and then you gradually get less and less of the one as you go out to basic matter right yeah which is in in total darkness so it's like he's like well yeah that's one way to look at it the other way to look at it is that you know the one is present in everything Mm -hmm. so just like we said you know you have a soul that's present in every part of your body but each part also has its soul right Mm -hmm. and there's a soul that's present in the world but each part of the world has its own soul Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the same same basic idea is like the soul isn't emanating from over there somewhere. It's emanating. the one isn't emanating from somewhere. It's like it is indwelling in everything. So the soul of the world, the soul of creation is emanating from the exact space that creation it's it's imminence. The one is imminent. Right. And right. And our manifestation springs out of that eminence yeah yeah that's 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 a good one for our listeners to think about ponder that on the tree of woe (laughs) that's right the um if you're if you're really into like contemplating this sort of thing one interesting book i was reading recently was david came smith's um deep principles of cabalistic alchemy oh man he is a he's a interesting thinker yes he is and so I I recommend it to your listeners, although if you start reading that book, you had better either be familiar with uh, Kabbalah or uh, alchemy or uh, certain esoteric types of Tibetan Buddhism, Mm -hmm. uh, namely Zogchen. And uh, Zogchen's a tough one. (laughs) It it is. Yeah. So it's... um, but you like you read it and you you're like okay so this is really it's a really neat book because it makes those connections and parallels explicit among those three mm-hmm. traditions um, yeah i received as well as to critical theory but you know i received some i received a zogchen transmission uh, a few years ago and a really good buddy of mine is um really uh seriously dedicated to zogchen and he's like here's some books. You should read these. You should buy these books, get these books. And he like, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't follow through super well, but um, it's a fascinating system. And it's really like the, the stuff that it has in common with like Western ceremonial magic is, is, uh, is pretty bizarre. I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, So, okay. Now you gave me a list of like other things that you like to talk about. 
and uh, one of them was pretty much about as vague as you could get. You said young, <laughs> and <laughs> um, I uh, I will confess that I am not super uh, well versed in young stuff, and I'm wondering when you say young, are you? uh really into like young uh like his psychology stuff or you do you like young and his alchemic alchemical gnostic things are you do you like keep a copy of the red book in the bathroom or something like what's uh what's your i i do i do have a copy of the red book but not in the bathroom oh. it's too too big right yeah too big to read <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to have a you really have have to have a lectern oh yeah but no i'm what i was generally thinking about was as you said i am frequently interviewed for bruno right and so i thought you might also like to talk about some of the areas which are bruno adjacent um yeah so for example as i you know we mentioned uh zogshin mm -hmm. so one of the areas that that got me into was i've been i got into that because i was looking through a lot of material on tibetan buddhism because of the visualization exercises right, connecting right. to the visualizations done in the art of memory mm -hmm. uh, and in the Ars Notoria, which was the predecessor technology used in the medieval times to supposedly cause spirits to teach you the seven liberal arts. Right. Yes. I've been, um, I've uh, read the Ars Notoria. It's, it reminds me of, so I've also been looking through the, uh, the the PGM the the Greco Egyptian papyri you know the the papyri yeah um which also has a little bit of like memory technology memory magic but um but a lot of it seems to mostly just be sort of like prayers or spells and not actually instruction on like how to sit down and create images or right. that sort of thing which is which is interesting that they would leave out those vital details. Yeah, so the um, the uh, sorry, the technology of the Ars, sorry, I, sorry, okay. Zogchen, but Ars Notoria, uh -huh. uh, Bruno in 30 Seals mentions one of his uh, convent mates, mm -hmm. uh, one of his fellow, fellow priests or monks used the Ars Notoria and he's like, and he got really good at all of these uh, seven liberal arts and then he bonked his head or something happened and like all of that went away and he's like oh like he didn't know anything and he's like <laughs> my art is better like he's like so basically he's he's repurposing this magical technology using stuff that we actually in the modern era would say this is psychologically like well-grounded mm -hmm. and as we were saying like earlier like you'd better have that material end of it worked out like the actual practical effect of the thing mm -hmm. worked out well so that you know you're doing these supposedly magical technologies but they have to work right right and to work they have to be in accord with how the world actually works and the interpretation that you know earlier technologies such as the Ars Notoria gave were not necessarily accurate or what they were attributing their success to was not accurate right like it may be very good for your memory to you know read books on grammar and then do your ars notoria prayer and, and look at this image and mm -hmm. you know thereby relax your mind and improve your retention rate that's a good point right? yeah but they're but right but they're attributing it to you know the spirit of saturn or something 
and I mean, why? Such yeah, I mean, why not? You know, they they have different ways of describing stuff or different ways of approaching and visualizing those things. I, yeah. Um, so then, so then, when you so, oh, so okay, so so then the I've been reading also visionary biographies of various people. So uh -huh. one of them was through one of the practitioners and, and reinventors of the Ars Notoria, which is a guy named John of Morigny. I think that's how it's pronounced, but um, he was a French monk in the 13th, 14th centuries. How do you, and, um, how did you say his name? John of Morigny, M-O-R-I-G-N-Y. I wouldn't know how to say I'm that. Paid a I'm paid a small stipend by the French government not to speak any French. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's yeah. that. Uh, but anyway, so, um, um, so there's a, a new, new book out from um, uh, Claire Fanger mm -hmm. who uh, called uh, rewriting magic, where she goes through his uh, visionary biography and she's got another one out. That is his rewriting of the Ars Notoria for uh, converting it from what's essentially a sacrilegious set of prayers mm -hmm. to ones dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And so he tried mm -hmm. to purify it because when he first used it, he ended up having these incredible dreams in which you know he was being attacked by demons and God was scolding him and beating him up and doing all these things. Mm -hmm. um, so I was fascinated by the parallels between his visionary biography and uh, one of the big writers on Dzogchen, uh, Dujam Lingpa, mm -hmm. who was a 19th century Tibetan who uh, received a number of termas revolving around Dzogchen things. And he had a very good attitude toward, he, he essentially supposedly never had a human teacher all of his lessons and all of his training was delivered by uh, spiritual beings so, who would come to him while he was in meditation. So how did so he like, invent Dzogchen or how did he carry on? No, no, it, it, it was, it was there already. And there are, the lineage is quite old. Right. Uh, but uh, essentially he, he said, you know, it, the way he would treat it was he would say, you know, when I was five, I had a, a clear vision and someone calling themselves uh, Guru Rinpoche uh, came to me and, and said the following. And it's very good because he's like, hmm. well, you know, so-and-so showed up and they said, you know, I am the, you know, I'm the Dakini queen of all space and time. And he's like, all right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, doesn't sort of judge that. He's like, maybe you are and maybe you aren't. Yeah. But like, it's like what do you have to say? To say. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it has like, and so they collect like 50 of these things in this, uh -huh. in this thing. And apparently they had some rather fascinating things to say. And, and, you know, he also had some very good things that he wrote and it was very helpful for him. So, and, but his big thing was the Dzogchen methods. Mm -hmm. Huh. Um, so the other thing that I've been reading lately is uh, Daniel Ingram's uh, thing. I'm, I'm supposed to talk to him this weekend uh, on uh, essentially how he became an Arhat. What so, is uh, an Arhat? 
An Arhat is an enlightened being. Is Daniel Ingram uh, an enlightened uh, being? Uh, that is, that's the, the big question. And apparently, yes. How can you tell? I don't know how I can tell. I'm going to find out from Daniel Ingram how he can tell. Do you think? But essentially he, so in, in his book, he lays out the traditional Theravada paths mm -hmm. toward enlightenment and says, okay, here are all of the stages. Here are the jhanas, which are states of meditative absorption. And you go through them in a certain series. Hmm. Right. So there's a, series you do if you're doing uh, shamatha meditation, which is concentration-based. There's vipassana meditation, which is insight-based, right? And there's another series for them. And what's interesting is that there are commonalities between the paths as traditionally explained and as he explains them, mm -hmm. right? And the meditative experiences that are found in mystical traditions across the globe. Well, that is interesting. Uh, at a, I mean, at a very granular and, yeah, yeah. and experience level. I mean, it's not just like, well, you know, people gradually become enlightened if they do these things. It's like, no, at this point, you know, at step 11, you will be here. You will, you know, like you will have the sensation that perhaps you can see through your eyelids and through the, the walls of your building, and this will last, and then the following will happen. Is it okay right. for me to be skeptical of this claim that he's... I, I mean, I guess I'm going to have to wait. And Is this going to be something that you're going to release on your podcast? Are you... Yeah, but that's okay. Don't don't worry about it. Just, I mean, go ahead. If you go to integrateddaniel.info... Integrated Daniel. You can read the whole book there, Uh huh. and you can make whatever judgments or interpretations of his claims that you want. That sounds, I think I'm going to have to put that on my list of things to do after I finish reading on the infinite. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell um, our wonderful listeners, all 10 of them, uh, where to find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, you can go to my blog, which is uh, bottlerocketscience.net. Okay. You can listen to my podcast, which is Startup Geometry. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter, which is infinite underscore me. Great. And that's awesome. I, it's I'm, It's been really nice having you on it. I hope that we can bring you on maybe after you're after you're done with the 30 statues and talk some more about interesting things you've discovered. And then uh, in the meantime, you can find us or me, I guess, My Alchemical Bromance on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com and on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you're listening to it right now. Thank you, Scott. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I'm super glad that we got to finally talk and uh, nerd out about Bruno and dive into some of this cool stuff. And it sounds like you got some interesting stuff coming up. Thanks, Eric. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.